Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are going to bring faith to the aid of science. Back in our first year of podcasting, we did an episode called Faith to the Aid of Reason. So this is a species of that one, along with, uh, I suppose, the one we did last year on the empiricist strike back. We have a general sympathy to um, these positions, though not completely unqualified. But and anyway, our goal here today is to talk through especially science and faith and whether they are worldviews and what that would or would not mean either way. But I think we'll get started by talking about our own personal interest in the faith and science question. How does that sound, Dad? Sounds real good, Sarah. Why don't you go first? Okay, well, I have not gone as deeply into this as you have. I think your story will be more interesting than mine. Mine is much more of a gradual one. Um, partly it comes from being um, married to a husband who is extremely astute scientifically and was even doing some original research in high school already, working with a scientist in the neighborhoods. And um, probably if he had not read Martin Luther's The Freedom of a Christian, would have gone into the sciences instead of the humanities. So therein lies an alternate history, which is uh, wow. time travel. Travel is outside the scope of our particular scientific discussion today. But anyway, um, yeah, Andrew has, um, I, I mean, I liked science well enough in high school, but I always knew I was a humanities sort of person. But uh, yeah, just over the years, um, just conversations at home and, you know, my own meandering interests. Um, but I suppose in the past number of years, um, I... Maybe it's part of um, my own um, maturation thinking theologically and getting interested in other disciplines like economics. I guess I was I've been able to look more at science or the scientific method as a form of thinking that I realize I found find absolutely essential and I'm grateful for and um, apply often and maybe in so doing have become slowly come slowly to realize how little. Um, well, let's say it like this, how often scientific results are invoked without any of the earned scientific thinking behind it, or even a great capacity to think scientifically behind it. And um, I know this is going to sound extremely obnoxious, but I gradually came to realize that I'm often a better scientific thinker than people I hear talking science, um, which is not to say that I am a scientist per se, but that the the habits of mind, um, but also the recognition of the limitations of what science can do have become increasingly important to me in my overall approach to the world. And so I guess... Um, um, my my uh, flip side concern to my new my growing appreciation of scientific thought patterns is um, the awareness that maybe as all other authorities have been swept away by the ravages of time and deconstruction and demythologization, that science as results or as a particular set of results is becoming a new authoritarianism and. Um, uh, science is no more equipped to be in authoritarianism and do well by us than religion ever was or uh, a king or emperor ever was. So, yeah, so we, we've talked about these kind of topics before. Um, I think you'll bring a, a new angle to this perspective today. But anyway, so just um, putting that out there again, as, as listeners have heard me say. How about you, Dan? Well, Sarah, first of all, let me compliment you. I think that that's exactly right to think of science as a manner of inquiry. 
and uh, to treat it as always as inquiry, uh, infinite inquiry, inquiry that will never in the history of humanity be exhausted, which then in turn requires the intellectual virtues of humility before the evidence, willingness to suspend your preconceived ideas uh, and let the evidence lead you uh, in directions where you, in, it's called induction, the inductive reasoning, in which you, you try to generate an explanation out of an account of evidence. And that, of course, requires curiosity. You can't think that you already know the answers if you are actually engaged in inquiry. So curiosity. And finally, there's a spiritual dimension to this, I think, above all, in the attitude of confidence, that uh, with humility and curiosity and patient attendance to evidence, you can trust, you can be confident that the world will open up its riddles uh, to uh, the community of scientific inquiry. I think that's all really helpful. It's right on target. And that aspect of confidence is how you can segue into a, a kind of relationship to the, of the Christian faith to, to science. I, I don't think it's an accident that modern science arose on the soil of Western European Christianity, though that takes us too far afield, and let's leave that aside. I personally have um, been involved in this question since I was 16 years old, and in my English class at high school, we read the famous play about the Scopes trial, Inherit oh, the Wind. Right, right. And I, I really liked it, enjoyed it. And so just casually with my father at, in some conversation, I said, well, you know, Joshua couldn't really have made the sun stand still. If he had, the earth would have been flipped off its axis and propelled into inter, interstellar space, <laughs> which was probably a line right out of Inherit the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, my Missouri Synod father pastor was appalled that his son was bowing down to the idol of contemporary science and disrespecting the the word of God in the Bible. And so we had a, a long, long talk about that. Wow. So the trial got replayed right in your own home. <laughs> it did, yes. But that taught me a lesson that, that I really want to dig into in this podcast, that what a mistake it is to treat the Christian faith or for that matter, scripture, as if constituting a worldview. And I'll explain what I mean by that and why it's such a problem. And the alternative I want to put out there is that the Christian faith is a God view, not a worldview. And that, of course, the God view and worldview are going to intersect with each other in all sorts of great and interesting ways, but they're not the same thing. So I'll, I'll get into that later on. Let me just say briefly then, when I, at seminary, when I really got into the historical study of the scriptures, I realized that the adoption of the historical critical method, which was opening up the Bible to me in so many wonderful and interesting ways, that historical criticism was how the scientific method became internal to Christian theology itself, how, how it was internalized into Christian theology. 
And uh, I think that uh, remains, has remained with me to this day, that uh, a, a genuine use, uh, an evangelical and Catholic and pastoral use of the Bible requires, uh, let me just say it, put it this way, scientific inquiry into the text and its original meaning. Uh, and then, of course, its intertextual meanings and its dogmatic meanings and all that that follow from that. So can I just say, I think that it's important to say here again that this is uh, more about the method and habits of thinking than it is about any particular set of results, because I think a lot of people have been uh, probably fairly burned by results of historical critical inquiry, which are just atomizing of every, you know, word and line and potential author. And, you know, people always joke about the documentary hypothesis of the Old Testament, which which does not open up and illuminate the scriptures, but just tears it to little tiny bits or something. And so what you're saying is not any particular results of historical critical method, though some of them at this point are probably robust enough that they can be taken, you know, as as with any scientific result is probably true, probably enough true to proceed with. But it was really the way of thinking and looking at, you know, all the the literal documents that have passed down to us and doing comparative language study and examining the Zitzenleben and bringing in archaeological results and that habit of mind in order to understand scripture better. That's what you're talking about. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll quickly point out how often I heard, especially earlier in my ministry, but I still hear it now and then today, is this kind of snotty um, uh, put-down that some clergy will use. Well, Jesus never really said that, or that <laughs> never really happened, you know, and it's just like playing a trump card uh, unfairly upon someone in a dispute. Um, uh, these, these are actually very serious and subtle questions, and you can't play them out like a, like a trump card in, a, in, in, in uh, explaining Scripture or using Scripture and so forth, especially in our theologically responsible way. Uh, just one more episode. Uh, after, um, uh, when I was in Bratislava in the 1990s, I realized that many of my students really needed help on the question of faith and science because they had been browbeaten by the Marxist-Leninist regime into thinking that Christian faith was superstition and anti-science, while Marxism-Leninism was hard science. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know how funny that sounds in hindsight, right? Um, but they they were still, you know, really hung up with this problem, and uh, that was the time at which the Templeton Foundation was giving grants for uh, teachers to create courses on this in this way. So I applied and I won. And I went to the UK several times to Oxford, um, and I enjoyed uh, 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 scholars like Midge Dexter, John Polkinghorne, Arthur Peacock at these symposium, and it was really very stimulating for me. So it's been an interest of mine on and off, and presently I'm engaged in a dialogue book with a professor of astrophysics, but we're not going to go into that very much today. Okay, but we will be bringing a bonus episode in the future, maybe next year, when the book is written and ready to be published, right? Right. Okay, shall we launch into the topic now? Yes, launch us away. Use all your rocket science to get us into into orbit. You know, I want to I want to 
read two quick brief quotations, and then I'm going to pose a question to set up our inquiry in this podcast. The first is a, a line from one of my favorite hymns, O God, our help in ages past. And the verse I want to pick out of that reads like this, Before the hills in order stood, or earth received its frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. So a a doxological confession of the majesty and eternity of our God. Quote number one. Now quote number two. This comes from Andrew, Andrew Knoll who's an eminent geologist at Harvard, I believe, whose book is titled A Brief History of Earth, Four Billion Years in Eight Chapters. (laughs) But it's a wonderful little book if you're interested in the latest scientific thinking about the story, the natural history of planet Earth. He writes in the beginning about his book. Here's Here's the quotation. This is a story about our home, the earth, and the organisms that spread across its surface. Everything about the earth is dynamic, ever-changing, despite common but false impressions of permanence, end quote. Now, Sarah, you've heard my two quotations. Let me ask you a question. Are these two worldviews that diverge from each other? I'm asking you. (laughs) Well, um, I think as worldviews, they might diverge, but I suppose if encompassed in a God view, they might not. Though I have to say what immediately comes to mind is I think it's a psalm that says the earth is fixed in its course and never has been moved and never shall be moved. And, um, you know, although I get that psalms are poetry and there are obviously far more troubling lines than others of the psalms, that one always kind of like gives me a little in church, like, well, it's always moving. But, you know, which is obviously not the point of the confession of that psalm one way or another. So that was my way of dodging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're, that's right. I'm setting it up, uh, setting up a problem here. Uh, and the way we often hear about this spoken about nowadays is that the scientific, the rise of the scientific worldview has antiquated a so-called biblical worldview. This is exactly how Rudolf Bultmann set up the problem of demythologizing uh, the, the, the New Testament in his famous essay. He said, you can't possibly walk into your room and flip the light switch or turn on the radio to hear a transmission coming through the airwaves, the radio waves through the air, and believe in the three-story cosmos uh, that's presupposed in so much of the Bible. So you have a scientific worldview and you have a biblical worldview, and they're mutually incompatible. And I think Bultmann's way of putting the question has carried on to this day on both sides of the usual polarization in theology, on the theological left and on the theological right. These are incompatible worldviews and one or the other must prevail. So on the left, theological left, we hear demands for a fundamental revision of the doctrine of God so that God is now seen as part of the cosmic process of evolution. On the other hand, on 
the theological right uh, if the question is not simply ignored altogether. Uh, you have, you know, pretty smart people, though, you know, really wrong-headed in my view, but smart people arguing for young earth doctrines of creationism, uh, defenses of Noah's flood as a global phenomena uh, just a few millennia ago. You know, that reminds me a few years ago, um, we met um, a, a family in various ways. Don't need to go into details about that, but um, they were they were pious Christians and they'd served as missionaries and you know and they had you know kids our age our, our son's age. So you know we we kind of started to strike up a, a friendship and then and then the mom told me that she had never realized how essential it was for Christian faith to defy the doctrine or the doctrine I suppose as she saw it of evolution. And to profess the doctrine of creation out of nothing in seven days, 6,000 years ago. And she had this whole set of DVDs she could lend me if I wanted to show them to our kid. And I was, Dad, I was literally struck speechless. <laughs> I just, like, had no idea what to say. And the only thing I could have said was, that is not um, remotely essential to your faith. And shame on the charlatan who has just corrupted the your mind and that of all your children. And use DVDs? I mean... <laughs> it's uh, so uh, frustrating that there are all these um, picking and choosing of of sciences, and then but then like making that so central. Um, but you know, I have to say, even in, in less egregious ways, um, I see this more and more just um, pastorally when I'm like teaching Bible study or something. Um, I realize that people are looking so badly for direction in life that pious people do actually go to the Bible looking for a worldview. And they're trying to like, they bring all their different kinds of questions to it and then are trying to get answers out of it. And a lot of times the Bible is just not interested in answering that question. And then people feel kind of bereft or confused, like, well, does God not care about my problem? And as I've said before, I, I think one of the huge challenges we have as churches is that people are so penultimately deprived of structure and order and meaning and knowledge that we're trying to provide them for that, but our primary task is the ultimate. And I suppose that would be reframing it in your language, that our job is to provide the God view. We are not actually competent to provide the worldview, and trying to get the worldview out of the Bible is inevitably going to lead to tears or disbelief. Of course it is, and you know we'll get into more precisely why that's true. I think one of the things Boltman said in the famous essay on demythologizing that remains true is that no one chooses their worldview. Their worldview is given to them by their place in history. We'll come back to that thought at the end of this podcast when we're going to talk a little bit at the end about how the discoveries, especially of astrophysics, have uh, inevitably altered our, our, our contemporary worldview, as even so pious and Christian an author as C.S. Lewis realized when he wrote his space trilogy. Well, we'll get to that in, in, a, in a while. But let's, let's see what goes unexamined on both sides. They never reflect on just what is a so-called worldview. I think the German is Weltanschauung, an intuition of the cosmos. Um, now, I would define worldview this way. 
A worldview is an imaginative construction based on the best available evidence of our human place in the admittedly big scheme of things. That's how I would define a worldview. A worldview is an imaginative construction based on our best available science, evidence, thinking of our human place in the big scheme of things. That reflects a perennial perennial human need, you know, to understand our place in the universe or in the cosmos. Now, theologically, what's interesting to observe here, Sarah, is in worldviews, God, or more precisely, the divine. I want to use that expression, the divine, the, uh, the deity, plays the role of an anchoring principle, the foundational element of stability. That's why the philosopher Aristotle spoke about the unmoved mover. And that uh, influence carries down all the way to Albert Einstein, who famously said that God does not throw dice, uh, that that God, as it were, uh, set up the world uh, as a fixed order and is the guarantee of it, of its uh, inner coherence and stability from the beginning. Oh, now that's that's quite interesting. I, I didn't, uh, I, I never thought of it quite like that. But yeah, I see that's that's the common thread is, you know, humans have profound fear of disorder, dissolution, chaos, you know, everything just falling apart. And so the common term of the divine, whether or not you are an explicit like confessional believer or very much one, is that God provides the stability. And of course, you know, for creatures, you have to have stability to take, you know, a single step forward or act in the world at all. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That, and that's different from being a creator, isn't it? That's quite different from being a creator. I think so, but that's 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 a few steps down the road yet okay. for me here. Sorry. Okay, but that's clear. It's impersonal, right? Right. Unmoved right. mover, um, metaphorically, God does not throw dice, which he was speaking against the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics. Now that's usually on the theological right or philosophical right that people hold to such positions. On the left interestingly enough, is a position that goes back to Plato's dialogue Timaeus, where he spoke of the divine as the, as the demiurge, which is a Greek term which can be translated as the uh, architect or the uh, craftsman uh, who constructs the world uh, out of its primordial elements. So on the left, the theological left, the divine is figured as the principle of change. Granting that the world is in flux, it's dynamic, it's changing, uh, where do you locate the divine in a, in a world of becoming? As the principle of order or the principle of, of, of a logical or causally necessary change. And in modern uh, the, uh, thought, that would be uh, Alfred North Whitehead's dipolar deity, which is a direct descendant of Plato's demiurge. 
Oh, or like maybe what we talk about, like emergent order or evolutionary development or even progress. So it would be, you know, like there's this raw material and the, the divine is what shapes it from lumpless nothing to something, you know, ordered and structured and, and guides it as it goes. Is that right? It, it's the principle of continuity and all the change. Exactly. That lends logical order to the dynamism. That's funny because it seems like that could at, at just as well lend itself to intelligent design as to entirely impersonal evolutionary thinking. Well, I, I, intelligent design, I mean, I always say about intelligent design, friends, the gas chambers at Auschwitz were intelligently designed. Inti <laughs> intelligent design is not saying a whole lot theologically. And in fact, it's quite, it's morally quite ambiguous, I think. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I think the more important point here is whether you're um, on the right or the left metaphysically here with these alternatives. Either position, strictly speaking, uh, conceives of the divine impersonally as a source or principle of stability. Now, when you Christianize that, of course, it comes down to the question whether or not there is a creator God. And I, that's one of the things I find so extremely frustrating about some of the faith science dialogue that goes on nowadays, as if you could settle all the basic questions, if you could agree or disagree on whether or not there is a creator God. Uh, and that's often as far as the dialogue goes. Whereas for, uh, for genuine Christian theology and theological thinking, that God is the creator is just a, uh, um, a bare, bare step one on the way to the fullness of the kingdom of God and its glory, redeeming the earth on which the cross of Jesus stood. And you can't really know what you're talking about when you say G-O-D or the divine unless you include that entire Trinitarian outreach for the redemption of the creation and its fulfillment, and you ground that in the eternal being of the triune God of love. And that would be what a genuine dialogue between Christian faith and science would be about. Right, right. Huh. That's also, it strikes me that um, if you try to solve metaphysically the, you know, divine as principle of continuity or divine as principle of change, and then say, okay, is the Lord God of Israel a good candidate for that principle? <laughs> then you've already metaphysically filled in, you know, you, you've colored everything in already, and then you're trying to ex post facto force a biblical figure, you know, creator back into it. And so already it's not really... A dialogue, it, you know, it, it's um, it's a philosophical philosophical job posting, and then you know, God applies for it and sees if He can get it. Right, or, or in other words, Christian theology becomes window dressing on what is basically a, a philosophical or metaphysical position. Right, right, right. I I, I could just mention briefly that that sometimes the intelligent design. Um, uh, uh, Whiteheadian Platonic view of God as the architect of the cosmos or the engineer, and maybe engineer would be a better, better word, a dynamic engineer of becoming, can be correlated with versions of logos theology, the divine 
logo says the ordering principle of creation or something like that. But we let's move on. I don't want to get down into that abyss. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fair enough. But the, the Sarah, the main point I want to make here is that when you take this idea of what a worldview is, and you ask critically the question whether Christian faith is a worldview, uh, one of the results of the analysis we just made is this. Whenever the worldview changes, people think they are losing their God, namely the anchor that stabilized their human habitation or their human becoming in the immense and dynamic cosmos. And I think that's what you can see, especially in the modern period, uh, with the rise of what we now know today as scientific, as the scientific view of the of the cosmos or the universe. People think they are losing their God. I would think, on reflection, that contemporary thinking in uh, cosmology, uh, which is still basically the so-called theory of the Big Bang, is highly amenable to Christian interpretations of the world as God's creation because it treats nature as historical, not just human beings on the stage of nature, as though nature were a fixed and solid platform, but nature and natural human beings from the get-go to the end as essentially historical beings. I think that comports very deeply uh, with the Christian faith, but we'll get to that a little later. Let's, Let's illustrate this with an example of worldview change from Christian theological history. About a thousand years ago, well, let me back up a little bit. The works of Aristotle were lost to the Latin-speaking world way back in antiquity. And they were actually preserved uh, in uh, Arab, Arabic civilizations and through which they migrated to Spain when Spain was under Muslim Uh, um, control. And from there, in Spain, the works of Aristotle were gradually translated into Latin. And then these unknown works of Aristotle flooded into the early medieval culture of Western Christendom in the 11th and 12th centuries. And this hit like a shockwave on the mentality of the um, early medieval theologians, so-called the early scholastics. Why why was Aristotle's work so, so, so disturbing for them? The inherited Christian theology from Augustine is represented in that hymn that we began with, O God, our help in ages past. The point for Augustine was that the God made known in the gospel is the faithful God of the human past and also the promising God of the human future and therefore a present help in time of trouble. Just as that other, another verse from that hymn says, Be thou our guide while troubles last and our eternal home. So for Augustine and his tradition up until Aristotle intervenes and uh, hundreds of years later, 
Worlds and worldviews may come and go, in, and in view of the eternity of God, which encap encapsulates this dynamic motion of time and space and evolving human worldviews. And the important point for Augustine is that God's governance over the whole panorama of natural history and human history has uh, God's governance has intervened episodically in time and space to reveal God. First, as the creator of all that is not God, and second, uh, revealing his good purpose for the redemption of all that he's made. Now notice then, for the Augustinian tradition, you don't have a worldview. What you have is a God view, relating God to our human world. It's not a human worldview incorporating divinity somehow. Thus far, the tradition of theology from Augustine. That makes sense? Yeah, I, maybe just to clarify, Augustine clearly had a worldview, uh, probably had multiple and competing worldviews. What you're saying is that he was also capable of holding to a God view in which God was the primary and dominant thing and incorporated the world into God's story in, in God's own way. Um, and that he didn't, and on account of that, his worldview could be challenged by his God view. But they, I mean, I, I think the, the point is just like, y you are going to have a worldview anyway. What you have the capacity is to have a God view that is independent of the worldview. So that if the worldview is upset, as, you know, Augustine's world was multiply times upset in his own lifetime, right? Um, the God view can perdure if it's a robust biblical God view, not a um, fragile cultural or biblical or scientific worldview. Well, of course, that's exactly right. Uh, what Augustine gets out of the Bible is a history of, of what I called earlier God's episodic interventions in his history with his people Israel to reveal his scope and his purpose to humanity. And Augustine himself passes through a series of changing worldviews from his early uh, uh, ambition to be a rhetor in the, in the Roman Empire uh, to his uh, adherence to Manichaeism, to his conversion, conversion to Catholicism, and then his contests with, uh, with uh, Donatists, Manichaeans, Pelagians, and finally the pagans who are criticizing Christianity for causing the fall of Rome. Uh, Augustine is in the thick of, of changing history and changing worldviews. And what he, in his mature theology, he's come to this knowledge of God given through the gospel of Christ. And it allows him to intervene critically and constructively with all these changing views of reality. All right. Well, you should take us on from there back into what Aristotle did, but I just want to flag. I don't know if this is the, the episode to discuss it, but I think it's exactly the episodic intervention of God that is so problematic for people, both from a pious perspective and from a, a more scientific perspective. But that would make sense if, like you've been arguing, what we want is a continuous principle, whether it is of, of stability or change. We want something that, you know, is same moment to moment the way, you know, um, you know, 
hydrogen and, and oxygen atoms stick together in a certain pattern to make water. And that's just is how it is. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's why it's episodic, why it's not steady. Maybe that's the the problem. And that would be but that would be something that would be solved and or addressed by talking about a personal God rather than an impersonal principle. Yeah, that this that issue, Sarah, goes back to Lessing, you know, who spoke about the great ugly ditch <laughs> between, you know, um, well, let's not, I don't want to go down that, that rabbit hole either so much in this episode. Right, like I just wanted to flag it as an issue, but yeah, let's go on. It, the, the scan, it's the, another version of the scandal of particularity. Naturally, nature's God would reveal God's self naturally to all natural beings, and there would be nothing episodic about it. It would be a right. steady state. Right. Okay. So Aristotle's works suddenly flooding into early medieval Christendom. Theologians were confronted with a systematic, coherent worldview, which explained everything naturally, everything, including the divine, which had, in Aristotle's hands became the necessary being and first cause of the cosmos, within the cosmos, the first cause within the cosmos. This was quite an intellectual challenge. Here was a comprehensive worldview explaining everything naturally, at least in the kinds of ways that Aristotle uh, uh, could um, access. And He had four views of causality, which we don't need to uh, dwell into. But it, the point is, is that there was no need here uh, for the hypothesis of a creator God out of nothing whose purposes are benevolent and whose goal is the redemption of all that he has made. There's no place for all that supernatural stuff that seems to come from the Christian tradition. So Christian theology had to struggle to preserve the governance of God over cosmic processes. And I say this attempt to Christianize Aristotle has produced all sorts of questionable implications. Uh, can you um, mention a few? Do you, are you, can you uh, tell us what would be questionable about the attempt to synthesize Aristotle's metaphysics and physics with Christian theology? Well, I mean, the, the most basic one seems to be that for Aristotle, God is within the system. And for Genesis, God creates the system that he is outside of naturally or ontologically is outside of, but has the freedom to enter and interact with as he sees fit. And so um, it would seem to me that any attempt to um, reconcile the two is going to always pull God into his own system and start requiring things of him that are at odds with, um, well, everything that's interesting about the Bible, probably. Um but also, I think in the end, it just, it, like you said, it, it can't but reduce God into this flattened principle. Right. I think Thomas Aquinas's great achievement was that he was aware of this danger and tried very hard uh, to preserve the ontological independence of the Christian God over and above the cosmic system. 
But, you know, it's always a kind of an unstable solution in my mind. Because it seems whenever you try to Christianize a philosophy like Aristotle, you've got to make an argument that nature and grace, St. Thomas famously said, grace does not destroy nature, but perfects and fulfills it. And this becomes kind of the slogan of Thomas Aquinas's uh, theological uh, uh, retooling of Aristotle. Uh, so you have to then argue that nature and grace exist in a the language, the jargon that's used nowadays quite a bit is a non-competitive symmetry. Oh yeah, right. A not yeah, so that being human and being divine don't compete with each other because they're on different planes of reality. But then you introduce that dualism within the cosmos between nature and supernature. So it seems to me, or you have to put God totally outside of the cosmos uh, in a separated realm of pure being, uh, as opposed to the the lower realm of creatures, the realm of becoming. And then inevitably, reality is going to be defined from the nature side, because that's just what we have more access to. And then grace just comes along as like, you know, the icing on the cake that fixes it up. But it's, it's, you know, it's external to real knowledge and the real system somehow. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the tendency in Thomas's theology is towards putting God so to speak, as naturally outside of the created world of becoming and to put God uh, in a supernatural world of pure being uh, where God is uh, unchanging, unmoved, resplendent in simplicity. Uh, and he, he has to do that in order not to reduce God uh, to what would be the more natural implication of Aristotle's thinking, that God is necessary being and first cause within the cosmos. Can I just also flag that it, I, in this kind of thinking, like sin makes even less sense than it does in a more Judeo-Christian worldview. I mean, it, you know, in, in Genesis, sin, sin just erupts. It's there. There's no attempt really to explain where it comes from, but it's, it's an, uh, part of reality so threaded through everything you you can't think apart from it and it seems like this is also an attempt to just kind of think things and like then sin is something else that you add on later to nature and um that seems to me also seriously problematic yeah uh, we could quickly illustrate this with luther's view in genesis uh, at least the debased form of thomism that he was arguing with centuries after the death of Thomas Aquinas. And really, he was arguing more with Scotus and Occam and Beale than with Thomas. Uh, but was that the sin of Adam had only lost the so-called supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and love, created graces. And this missing uh, supernatural virtue that Adam had lost in the fall uh, is resupplied uh, by grace uh, through baptism uh, into Christ and the infusion of the Spirit. Luther said that's much too weak a view of the fall and what happened um, 
uh, to humanity in the fall, because it was actually, Luther argued, essential that Adam was led by the Holy Spirit. It was essential to his humanity that he was just like Jesus from his baptism onward. The new Adam is totally governed by the Holy Spirit. That's what Adam lost. And the loss of the governorship of the Holy Spirit was lethal in its implications. It was spiritual death, where spiritual means loss of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So that's anyway, that's a digression. And there's a third implication that Thomas uh, really struggles with. Uh, If God is eternally self-identical in timeless, spaceless, resplendent simplicity, how did it ever happen once upon a time, at least in divine time, that God decided to create a world? Right. I mean, what would ever motivate God to do something new? You know, can God even experience a novelty uh, under these metaphysical conditions? And if God had perfect foresight, then he knew that creating would result in sin and sin would result in his incarnation and then crucifixion. So, yeah. Why go through with that and not just stay resplendent? Right. Uh, What motivates the act of creation? Aristotle had seen the natural entelechy that if divinity is such as he imagines the unmoved mover and necessary being, then creation must be as eternal as the unmoved mover. Because no, no novelty can occur to God or the divine. And the creation simply must be the necessary expression of God's eternal being. And Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas admitted that philosophically that would be, of course, um, the more uh, winsome argument. But since Revelation tells us God created the world, we don't accept it. <laughs> and that was the end of the argument. <laughs> We're stuck with it. Well, that I mean, that really shows that the true God then is unchangingness. And I mean, it's easy to imagine fragile creatures with very limited lifespans, you know, idolatrously adoring unchangingness. But, you know, even the unmoved mover is not the highest God there. It's It's the principle of unchangingness that's the highest God. Yeah, and it's finally, it's just a totally asocial and non-personal view of deity. So I think after all the, a thousand years later, we are still struggling with the medieval attempt to Christianize the Aristotelian worldview. You might want to say, uh, how's that worked for us? (laughs) (laughs) And it's a cautionary tale that I'm making because I think it's dangerous to try to Christianize any contemporary worldview. Let them simply be what they are, uh, the current human attempts to understand our place in the cosmos. Now, in fact, natural science has left Aristotle behind for a long time. The scientific revolution of the 17th and 18th centuries, culminating in the 19th century in Darwin's theory of evolution, is you can read it as a step-by-step liberation from Aristotle's uh, interpretation of nature as grounded and necessary being, which is the first cause of all things. But I suppose if for, if for Christendom, um, 
Christian faith was bound up with an Aristotelian worldview that is one of the many reasons why the rise of natural science and then evolution and ultimately astrophysics and the extraordinary size of the universe are experienced as threats to Christian faith because they are, first of all, threats to Aristotelian science. And if you're not clear about how that has gotten tangled up with your faith, I mean, I think there are still reasons to be alarmed, at least initially, by something like evolution or the size of the universe, but they can be alarming for reasons separate from the fact that they threaten an Aristotelian Aristotelian worldview. Right. Uh, if listeners are want to know more about this, I would recommend a book by a, theologian, a Lutheran theologian of the previous generation, John Dillenberger, who's really quite a competent fellow, very clear thinker. And he wrote a book published in 1960, Protestant Thought and Natural Science, a Historical Study. Uh, and he really points out a lot of the problems uh, 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 connected with the uh, baptizing of Aristotle's metaphysics that has, in one way or the other, predominated Christian theology for a thousand years, up to and including contemporary attempts uh, to resurrect Aristotelian metaphysics, which I, I just think is simply hopeless. But anyway, that's my opinion. We, in my opinion, we've entered a post-metaphysical age. I mean, what does that mean? As we, uh, people are just fundamentally suspicious of big, sweeping, grand narratives of how of the world and how it is, whether it was Marxism, Leninism, or Nazi racial science. I mean, those are the biggies that really uh, exploded in the twentieth century. But even something like uh, 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 Fukuyama, France uh, Fukuyama's resuscitation of Hegel's philosophy um, to speak of the victory of the liberal globalist capitalist uh, amalgamum uh, after the end of the Cold War as the end of history. That's another meta narrative that's really a kind of a uh, 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 a metaphysically grounded worldview. I don't know, Dad. I I think a lot of people are are more credulous than ever, and I think actually, alluding back to what I said at the beginning, is the the loss of tools to think in a scientific way, and the loss of you know religious communities that give you theological and spiritual tools mean that this, that, and every worldview comes sweeping in. And maybe the difference is a high tolerance for their incompatibility. But I think people are more susceptible than ever to big claims about how it really is. Uh, maybe not respectable enough to get university attention, though I can't help but think that a lot of what the ideology that is in universities now is yet another, it's, it is at root a metaphysical claim about, um, you know, oppressed and oppressor classes or something like that. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, again, th this is such an interesting conversation. We could go down many digressive paths here. Uh, I agree and disagree with you, I, I, and I think you have to distinguish between highbrow and lowbrow culture. Uh, admittedly, the world I live in is sometimes pretty highbrow, uh, and when I say we've entered a post-metaphysical age, I'm talking about the philosophers that I read and things like that, where there's just deep skepticism uh, 
But that doesn't mean on a lowbrow level these same highbrow thinkers don't fall for narratives. <laughs> so yeah, right. okay, okay. I agree yeah. with you in that respect. Now, I, how do we cut through all this fog uh, and put our own position out there for people to think about? I say what concerns Christian theology is not a worldview, but a God view. And by that I mean an apocalypse that breaks into any and all worldviews, as into a strong man's house to bind him up and set his prisoners free. Such theology can inhabit any worldview, but in the same disruptive way. How does that sound for like for a thesis? <laughs> well, it sounds like pure mythology, Dad. <laughs> you can't you can't bank on it. You can't calculate it. You can't measure it. You can't predict it. And like even if you pray and beg it, sometimes it shows up and sometimes it doesn't. So you know, give me an algorithm any day. At least it's steady and predictable. Right. And it's also, the algorithm is also a prisoner, and you will be imprisoned in the, um, uh, in the surveillance capitalism of the contemporary age, which all the artificial intelligence scientists are cooking up for us, what a hundred years ago Max Weber called the iron cage of modernity. Uh, you, you're welcome to have a worldview if you want one. But I'm warning you <laughs> theologically that it's going to be a prison house. Yes, obviously. I, I, I was I was setting up the devil's advocate case there. But I mean I, I, I think the the of course I like it because I'm a Christian and a theologian, but I think the the problem is, and we stated this again and again, and I still stand by it, is that God has to show up and prove himself. And if God is not going to show up through being a steady, impersonal principle, then God has got to show up in highly personal and idiosyncratic ways. And then if that's the case, God is not calculable. Like, this is why, to me, I think it's insane and an enormous waste of money that anyone ever does scientific tests on whether prayer works, because the idea that you can control the variables is so lunatic and so unscientific and so not indigenous to prayer itself as to render the whole thing completely meaningless. Um, but so that being the case, nevertheless, we go on praying and we go on experiencing God and we go on gathering in community and worshiping and things happen in the world as a result. So how are we then to think about this personal idiosyncratic and apocalyptic God in our um, best and worst human attempts to figure out the pattern and make it controllable so it's predictable so that we don't live in total chaos and fear, even if it does also lead us towards trying to control and manipulate other people so we can make money. Well, biblically, the answer to that is the little book of Habakkuk. <laughs> Nobody was expecting you to say that, Dad. I just want to put out there. <laughs> yeah, well, I, there. There's nothing to be done here but to let the worldviews and their attempts to domesticate God into a principle under our control, to let these worldviews be crucified in the crucible of genuine human experience, which is Habakkuk's anguished cry, where are you, O God, God of justice, when the righteous suffer and the wicked prevail? And we must let 
that caustic question do its deconstructive work. Some years ago, I wrote uh, a contribution uh, to a, a, a chapter for a, a book on Luther's implications for philosophy, and I gave my chapter the provocative title, Luther's Atheism, <laughs> by which I meant the way in which his theology of the cross undermines all uh, worldviews in which God becomes the idol of human stability uh, or the principle of human change or something along those lines. And it, it is good that such kinds of belief in divinity are destroyed in the crucible of genuine human experience on the earth. Then we are in the company of Jesus on the cross and his cry of dereliction. And ultimately, that's the right place and the good place to be, in my view. On the cross, while well, Jesus is being abandoned, and so are we. But okay, but Habakkuk goes on to also say, the just shall live by faith, you know, which a certain apostle some centuries later took up and made central to his argument. So I think you would not just leave us hanging desolate on the cross, but say that it is when this uh, caustic lie has, L-Y-E, um, has dissolved away all of these false worldviews in the crucible of human experience, that is when faith actually does become a living, active, mighty thing, as Luther would say, um, Absol drawing on Absolutely, Paul. sir. I mean, the, the, the Gospels do not leave Jesus with the cry of dereliction. Mark does, uh, and maybe Matthew, but Luke and John are, are intent to uh, telling us that Jesus uh, uh, finishes his life in faith, commending himself to the care of the Heavenly Father. Well, and e either Jesus, whether the one who finishes his life with the cry of dereliction or finishes his life with a prayer of faith, either way is raised from the dead by the Father afterwards. That's right. And the resurrection is crucial to the story because it's the vindication of Jesus's obedience, even uh, to the ignominy of the death on the cross, the cry of dereliction, uh, and vindication of the faith by which he underwent such a profound physical and spiritual suffering on behalf of others out of love for them. So I think that um, this acid of modern scientific naturalism is a good acid because the target is not the God of the gospel, but the medieval divine of theologized Aristotle, the first cause who is the necessary being grounding all contingencies of natural history. Now, we just have to recognize, for scientific work, this God is simply a useless metaphysical posit that can do no scientific work. Who needs it? I have no need of that hypothesis, says the scientist. Good. Fine. Let's get God out of the business of anchoring our worldviews, and let science be science, a genuine inquiry. Uh, uh, into uh, the natural world. And I want to conclude with this series of thoughts. All of this is not to say that we don't have a worldview or we won't have a worldview. In fact, we do have a worldview. Just think about how my generation was raised on Star Trek 
and your generation uh, came to age on Star Wars. It's and in these popular forms of entertainment and imagination, it's the old perennial question about the human place in the cosmos. Now, scientists today believe the cosmos is 13.8 billion years old and that it extends vastly beyond our own inconceivably immense Milky Way galaxy containing 200 to 400 million stars, solar systems. So, we simply think of the world this way. And we cannot not think of the world this way unless we're being intentionally stupid or intentionally blind. So it's a topic for another time, Sarah, but I want to leave today with this thought. In spite of the statistical probability that life has emerged elsewhere in this vast and ancient cosmos, what is increasingly clear is that as embodied beings, we are organically bound to this very earth, and that the emergence of personal life in communities that can be bound together either by love or by hate, and in either case equipped by intelligence to exercise either love or hate, this human phenomena is a relatively rare and precious thing. And the real question for theology is how the faithful God of our past can indeed be our hope for years to come. All right. Well, I have nothing to say to that beyond a doxological one. So dox away. From everlasting, you are God, (laughs) to endless years the same. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, connected to that then, next time on the show, we will be talking about miracles with a little help from C.S. Lewis. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.